You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Hey investors, Bradley here, and I'm so excited that you can join us today. We are talking to a YouTuber that I absolutely love and has amazing, valuable content to share with us today. His name is Matt McKeever. He is a real estate investor, a YouTuber, he's a registered CPA, event planner, and co-founder of the Real Estate Rat Pack, as well as the Cashflow Tribe. At the age of 31, he went all in on real estate in London, Ontario, and today he has over 50 units and 100 tenants. And on his YouTube channel, they have over 50,000 subscribers, but that's just one YouTube channel. He also does other fun stuff. He has another YouTube channel that's got over 40,000 subscribers and over 9 million views. And he's gone all around the, the uh, country for sure in North America talking and educating um, real estate investors on how they can grow their uh, financial success. And so we're so excited that he's able to join us today on our podcast. Check it out. All right, Matt, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. How you doing? I'm doing good, Bradley. Yourself? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to have you here because we've got so many investors that are watching our content and I really want to have more of a push for people like you that are not just talking the talk, but walking the walk and have experience in investments. And uh, so, yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy to have you here. And specifically, I want to talk a little bit about your Burr strategy. Um, because I think it's a really unique angle. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about how that came to be and, and what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. So the first things first, the Burr investment strategy for anyone that's unfamiliar with it, that stands for it's B-R-R-R-R and that stands for buy. So go buy a distressed or underutilized property, then renovate it. So, you know, we're going to do strategic renovations, bring it up to its highest, best, most efficient use. Then we're going to re-rent out the property now that we've renovated it you know we can attract uh, the highest quality tenants possible as well as ideally the highest rents possible then once we're done that we're going to go and refinance the property and so we're going to actually pull out the money that we've created through the new equity by both increasing the rents as well as just generally improving the property and once we've refinanced and pulled that money out we're going to repeat the process and so that's my Favorite and the most important part of the burn investment strategy is being able to recycle your capital. So what I find is it's a really, a really effective strategy for people that feel, you know, a constraint or scarcity around say cash or down payment funds or renovation budgets. So for myself, the way I really discovered it was back in 2015, 2016, just sleuthing online, reading up as much information as possible. And I stumbled upon it from multiple sources, but the most popular source would be Bigger Pockets. Brandon Turner was a big proponent of it back then. He still is today. And uh, the moment I saw and understood that strategy, I was like, wow, this is what's going to take me from buying a property a year to being able to do multiple deals a year, as well as being able to attract more joint venture partners because I can get really creative with that JV structure and really create an, an excellent win-win opportunity for both me and my money partners. Yeah. And I mean, you're totally doing it and it's so cool to watch. And I was, I was watching one of your uh, videos on burn. There's a lot of great content. I encourage any of our listeners to follow your channels. And, uh, and one of the things you mentioned was the perfect burr. And I, I kind of want to ask you a little bit about that. So we kind of get this process and we'll dive into what each of them kind of look like, um, bit by bit, but what is the like perfect scenario? Like what is your ideal scenario yeah. for implementing the burr? Yeah. 
So the perfect burr is truly like an exceptional investment strategy, in my opinion. Um, again, in the hotter market we are in today, it's a little bit tougher to find those opportunities. But what the perfect burr looks like is we're essentially going to buy a property, renovate it, hold it during the, those renovations and have all our costs associated with that project being 80% of the after repair value or the fair market value once we've renovated the property. And so what that does in Canada, it's pretty easy to get a standard traditional mortgage at an 80% loan to value, which means that the bank will lend to you, you know, based upon an appraisal or what the fair market value is, they'll give you 80% of that amount. So let's say I'm looking at buying a half a million dollar property, or once I'm done, the property is going to be worth half a million dollars. Well, the bank would be willing to lend me $400,000. So if I can find a property and buy it for either at 400,000 or less than 400,000, as well as renovate it and hold it during those renovations and be all in for that $400,000 amount and then get an appraisal at 500,000, it means that literally I'm going to get all my money back from that deal. So I'm going to get back all my down payment funds originally, all the costs associated with closing and holding the property, as well as my renovation budget. And the reason this is so important, and I think so attractive to a lot of younger investors, or just investors in general that maybe don't have massive savings or tons of money partners, is because we can recycle our funds in a short period of time, we're able to go out and execute more deals. Because one of the things I find that a lot of beginner investors struggle with is really, you know, getting up to full capacity and having like a business model that's really humming along. Oftentimes they're like, oh man, like, you know, I got a business model that works, but it takes me a year or two years or three years to save up the down payment, to save up the renovations. And I just, I want faster velocity of my money. I want my money to turn over faster. And so to me, the burn investment strategy, especially if you can execute a perfect burn investment is just the optimal solution for investors that kind of fit that model. Yeah. And I think that is kind of what attracted me to having you come on the podcast is because that's a different perspective than I think a lot of people can and do have even in the GTA, which is a vast uh, majority of our audience. And like, and just to kind of, I guess, promote you a little bit, like from looking at some of the numbers you've done since uh, 2015 is when you started applying this Burr strategy. So if, if anyone were to look back at 2015, that is not an exceptional marketplace, right? Like I know you mm -hmm. started in 2010, which there might've been an opportunity in there, but having come through the market we've seen in the last few years, you would almost argue there's a lot working against you and you've still been able to pull it off. And so I think it's a really cool philosophy to be able to have all your money, be able to come out of it and being able to duplicate. And it allows for the speed that you've been able to obtain all these properties. So kudos to you, man. And I, I love, I love having uh, that insight be presented to people because I think people have in Canada because of the prices. And, and I would even say out in Southern Ontario where you are, people are maybe getting a little bit hopeless and thinking that that's possible. So to at least have someone that's still able to apply it, I think is a really good thing. So just another question for you. So what is your ideal property? Like when you're going out and purchasing that first property and maybe there's different angles to it, what are you looking for? Absolutely. So a few things to segment, you know, Matt McKeever, the investor today, I'm still implementing the burn investment strategy, but I'm doing it on larger buildings now. So I'm primarily targeting buildings between 10 and 50 units and we'll do a burr on that. So we're still trying to refinance it over a one year period. But I'll kind of talk about back in 2015, 16, 17, when I was really executing the burn investment strategy more at the entry level. So in that case, I was investing here in London, Ontario. 
And so primarily one of the drivers for me investing in Southwestern Ontario is focused on affordability as well as cash flow. And so in particular, what I'm looking for from a cash flow perspective is a property that after I renovate it, after I refinance it, once I've pulled out my new equity, it will still meet or exceed the 1% rule. So if you aren't familiar with the 1% rule, the way that works is we're essentially focused on having our gross monthly rents equal 1% of the fair market value of the property. So here in London, maybe that looks like, you know, buying a duplex for 200,000 putting $40,000 into the holding, closing, and renovation costs, so $240,000 all in, get reappraised for $300,000 and rent it out for $3,000 a month. That to me would be an excellent burn investment strategy that you could potentially do in my market or across Southwestern Ontario in 2020. So those are kind of the, the broad characteristics and numbers we'd be looking for. But getting more specific, what I was doing, and I would encourage a lot of people that want to implement the strategy today to look for, is properties that are in high rental neighborhoods. So for me, I was really focused on downtown cores um, here in London, Ontario, and neighborhoods adjacent to it. And so again, because you know, in these smaller cities that maybe aren't as built up as Toronto, like uh, Toronto proper, I should say, this can still work in like Hamilton, St. Catharines, and the greater GTA. But for us here in London, Ontario, I was literally looking at century homes that at some point in time had been subdivided into multiple units. So these were often like big old mansion houses, beautiful buildings, um, but they'd been subdivided often into a two to a fourplex. And what I would do is look for properties that were under rented, mismanaged, they had deferred maintenance, things of that nature. And I would go in and bring them up to their highest, most efficient use. At the end of the day, as a real estate investor, what we're really depending on is information asymmetry as well as just taking a inefficient asset or something that's being underutilized and trying to bring it up to its highest, best, most efficient use. One of like my pro tips these days for people that want to implement the burn investment strategy, if you're looking to absolutely maximize your gross rents and your income on the property is consider maybe even pivoting from just a long-term rental perspective and maybe have one or all of your units pivot over to short-term rentals like on the Airbnb platform or a homestay and things of that nature. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of investors kind of leaning that way? Have you seen that as an opportunity lately? The short-term yes. rental so market? Yeah. We're, we're aggressively pursuing it right now. Um, of course, at the exact moment that this video is being shot, there's a little bit of a pullback in the short-term rental market simply because right. travel is being diminished. Right. And I suspect that that will be a trend that we'll see for a little bit longer. So it may not be literally the perfect moment this second, but I suspect that once kind of a lot of the noise and fear dies down, there's going to be a lot of opportunities again in the short-term rentals. So I don't, this is a little embarrassing, but my property managers take care of a lot of my stuff today. But I would say right now, I maybe have a dozen or 15 units here in London, Ontario that are up on Airbnb. So that's wow. maybe, you know, 10 to 15% of my units available are on the Airbnb platform. On very cool. So that kind of covers our buy side. So we've got this ideal property. So the second, the first R, I guess, the second letter is renovate. So you're kind of talking about uh, not having the highest and best use as far as the, maybe the property, some of these older homes. So what do you find um, renovation wise is like some of the best ways you can get a home very quickly and affordably to a higher value to get that financing later? Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite subject matters. And what I like to call this is strategic renovations. And so in order to implement a strategic renovation, we need to really be dialed in and focused on data, not drama. 
So drama is your emotions being like, oh, this would look so beautiful with a granite countertop, things of that nature. You know, I would never want a house that doesn't have vaulted ceilings. You know, that's great for you personally. And you can get tied up into your drama on your personal resonance. But when it comes to real estate investing, we just need to be all about the data. So I'm looking at what and what renovations have the highest ROI, you know, how can I, you know, put in the littlest amount of money overall while still increasing the amenities and desirability of the unit and maximize the rents. In general, what I find in my market is, you know, adding additional amenities like a dishwasher to a kitchen. So if it currently doesn't exist, love adding a dishwasher. And again, you can do this quite frugally. You can literally find a used dishwasher on Kijiji or Facebook marketplace for a couple hundred dollars, pay a plumber a hundred or $200 to install it. I almost guarantee you can be $500 all in or less for this renovation. And in my market, there's a good chance I can charge $50 or more per month in additional rent by simply adding that amenity and kind of sprucing up the unit. Then another great renovation um, is adding dishwashers. So, or sorry, not dishwashers, laundry units. And so if we add laundry units, again, oftentimes in my market, you can get that used uh, laundry unit installed, even if there was no previous hookups, Maybe you're looking at $1,500, including the used appliances, maybe $2,500 if we get new appliances, and it's a little bit further of a run for our electrician to run the um, power cables. But beyond that, again, I can often charge anywhere from $75 to $100 more a month because one, my tenants now are going to save money because previously they had to go to a coin laundry. But two, in general, we find we attract a higher quality tenant. Um, because a lot of tenants that want laundry in their units, they're just more responsible and they have a general, generally they're more uh, clean as well. So that's an additional little bonus for us. Otherwise, the most, like the absolute best renovations you can do bang for your buck is painting. Cleaning and painting can go a massive distance in a rental grade renovation. Then in addition to that, adding new like luxury vinyl plank flooring, love doing that. You're maybe at, in my market, two to three dollars per square foot for the actual flooring, and then maybe another two to three dollars a square foot for the install. So again, for you know a thousand square foot apartment or an eight hundred square foot apartment, even with like cutoffs and wastage, we're probably still at you know five thousand bucks or less to put in install that flooring, and we've got something brand spanking new, maybe a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred to paint the entire unit, clean it out, and it can really make a massive difference. Then finally, if we're looking at kitchens, what I really like to do is first see, can I make the current existing boxes work? Oftentimes the existing boxes are solid built, especially in the old properties that I'm going into. And maybe we can just change the hardware and countertop. And oftentimes that's all we do. And yet by doing that, painting the doors and painting the boxes, all of a sudden we've got essentially a brand new kitchen. We've got new flooring and new paint as well, which also helps emphasize that everything feels fresh, new and refreshed. And so, you know, in my apartment buildings today, when we go in and do these strategic renovations, we're usually spending anywhere from 10 to 16 grand for an entire unit turnover. And, you know, in general, depending on how low the rents were before we got in there, in my market, sometimes we're doubling the gross rents, right? Like maybe that one or two bedroom apartment was renting out for seven or $800, but fair market value for an updated unit that has some of the amenities I've mentioned, well, that's going to rent out for eleven or $1,300 a month. That's a huge increase overall. And realistically, looking at our uh, return on investment or even our payback period, oftentimes I'm looking at like a one to a two year at the absolute most payback period on these renovations. 
I love that, man. And I, I find not a lot of people talk about this and especially talking to new investors, they've got this idea in their mind where it's like, okay, I'm going to do a bathroom renovation. And I mean, when we're, when we're helping clients buy homes, yeah, I'll say, okay, a, a full washroom, eight to $10,000, right? Like you're, you're, there's a substantial cost to that. But when it comes to rental units, it's a completely different perspective. And honestly, you've hit like a lot of the things that I, when I've walked into my rental units that I've dealt with because it's bang on, right? Like painting and hardware, like some of these things, like this is great, this is great information. So, so now we've got this unit and we like it and we feel like we can have a, a tenant that, that we would like to work with, rent it. So how do you go about um, finding that ideal tenant? Like how do you, what's the process of filtering and like, what are you looking for? Yeah, so absolutely. You know, the first thing we need to be aware of is what the local regulations are. So we have some pretty strict rules here in Ontario. So really important as a landlord, you, you know, brush up on your awareness of that because especially you don't want to be on the wrong side of like human rights violations and stuff like that. And it's a very sensitive thing. Um, so in general, what we like to do, you know, one is great marketing. So we're going to really market hard this property. So we're going to hit up Kijiji, Facebook Marketplace, all the usual suspects as well. Oftentimes cities or municipalities will have their own local niches, right? Like maybe, and for example, if you're looking for a job in London, Ontario, you know, you can look at Workopolis and whatever the other ones are, Indeed, things like that. But we also have like Night Hunter, which is like local to London, Ontario. So if there's a local market, you also want like a local online market. You want to become aware of that as well. Because we've renovated our property recently, we're going to be pricing it on the higher end of the spectrum. So that's actually going to naturally filter out maybe some of the less desirable tenants for our unit as well. Finally, if you really want to maximize the efficiency of your time and energy in regards to filtering tenants, my two biggest tips would be consider doing like open houses or batch viewings where you're going to really try and have multiple people come look at a property in a short period of time. Just going to save your commuting and hassle as well. No shows are a real thing and that can be very frustrating as a landlord. So anything we can do to minimize that is very helpful. Another great tip is you know, if there's a lot of demand and right now in Southwestern Ontario, vacancy rates are near all time lows. We're often hovering around 2% vacancy rate. We can ask the tenants to do, or our prospect tenants to do a bunch of steps first before we ever even show the property or consider them. And what this does is it essentially allows them to self-select or self-remove themselves from the candidate pool. So I know of one landlord in particular that he actually brags about how complicated his uh, steps and procedures are to apply to uh, get his unit rented. And he said, you know, I had like 50 people interested, only one applied, but that one that applied was absolutely amazing, detail oriented, and really was willing to, you know, understand and respect the rules of my property. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. Okay. So I'm interested in the, the kind of process. So we've gone, now we've rented it. So we're going to refinance it. I, I'm assuming you're renting it first in order to kind of show the rental potential. So then we're going to go and refinance it. And I'm also interested because now I know, and just from what you're saying, and you're, you're doing different uh, through Airbnb and you've got larger units now, what are some of the differences that you're finding from maybe a single family or a two unit home to now 10 unit homes? Like what are some of the big things when you're approaching for refinancing that might've changed as your portfolio grew? Absolutely. So when it comes to refinancing, usually the crux of our refinance is going to depend upon the appraisal. And so as part of that, we need to be aware and understand how appraisers do their job. <laughs> I could do an entire podcast just complaining and kind of bitching about appraisers and the troubles that they give us as real estate investors. But 
it's the nature of the business. So it's the reality and we need to live and work within that reality. So in general, they're going to be looking at, you know, uh, comps. So they're going to be using like a comparable approach to determine, you know, what other properties similar to this property have sold for. And they're going to probably lean on that to a high degree for their evaluation. Next, they're also going to look at the income based approach. So again, you know, like what's the cap rate, what's the prevailing cap rate in your market and you know how this property would fare at that cap rate from a price perspective. Then finally, replacement costs. Replacement cost is probably going to be the least utilized one. Um, and there's a variety of factors. And again, we won't go deep down that rabbit hole. But in general, say we're dealing with single family or, you know, a property, a single family home that maybe has an accessory suite. Well, in that case, that property is going to be really driven by the comparables. So like in general, the appraiser and the banks are going to have a bias towards what have other properties like this sold for. So you're going to want to, you know, really do your research in order to be able to accurately estimate your after repair value or your fair market value on this property once we've done the renovations. Now, once we start moving higher up on the unit scale, once we get to that 10 units or above, it's really gonna be driven based upon the income-based approach. So that's gonna be all about cap rates or whatever the prevailing metrics are used in your local market in order to determine the valuation of the property. So those are the two primary drivers. And again, depending on how big of a building we're getting into is going to be a big part of that. And then finally, of course, the lender we're dealing with as well. You know, some lenders will be dictating the appraiser we use. Other lenders will allow us to select our own appraisers where we may even have a pre-existing relationship or knowledge of that appraiser and how they operate their business model or estimates. So at the end of the day, there's no perfect formula for knowing exactly when appraisal is going to come into. It is a bit of a black box, but overall we can prepare ourselves to try and manage that situation as well as possible. So it's important. We never want to try and tell the appraiser how to do their job when they're coming through our property, because one, it's going to get us up on the wrong foot and not get us the results we want. But two, it is important for us to take ownership of the process. So let's make sure that we're there on time or early. Usually appraisers show up a bit early because they want to walk the exterior of the building. Well, I want to make sure I show up even earlier just so I can make sure that there's not trash cans tipped over and raccoons everywhere, like something silly like that. That might make a negative impact and subconsciously create a bias towards my property from the appraiser. Then secondly, we can you know inform the appraiser that we've done our research and homework and oftentimes they will be a little chatty with us and be like, so what are we looking for on this property again? And that's where rather than just be like, well, I'm hoping for a million dollars. What I'd rather see people say is, well, based upon, you know, the property three houses down one, two, three main street sold for a million fifty. And this property I know doesn't have a garage, but otherwise is identical to it and has been recently renovated where that property wasn't. So I'm really aiming for, you know, kind of that million plus range you know, that's a much better way to have a conversation with an appraiser rather than to say, I hope or I need. Right. Or just coming in with a single number that maybe the lender has. And yeah, that's great. So, okay. So thank you for walking us through the burst. So I guess the last one is repeat. So then we're going to kind of recycle and hopefully we can get this perfect burst. So, but I want to take it back to maybe someone that is on the sidelines or kind of hasn't really gotten their feet wet. What is something that you would say to somebody looking to invest today um, like if you could give advice maybe to when you were starting, what would be something that you would want to, to share? 
Yeah. So the three biggest tips I have, and I'll try and keep it brief, but tip number one is network. Always be networking, meet like-minded individuals, surround yourself with people that are actively doing what you want to do. Always be taking counsel, not advice. So counsel comes from someone that's been there, done that, has the t-shirt, and you actively would trade roles with that person. So if you don't want to trade roles with that person financially, I, in general, wouldn't take financial advice from that person. Um, so I think that's really important where advice comes from someone's emotions and just feelings. And again, they may have good intentions, but the results are what matter in this game of investing. The second piece of advice I'd give people is make more offers. If you make zero offers, I can guarantee how many deals you're going to do. It's zero deals. And like people may be laughing at home about this, but it's realistic. Like I talk to so many aspiring investors and when they're like, man, I'm really struggling to get a deal. I'm like, well, how many offers are you making a week? And they're like, a week, I've never made an offer. I'm like, well, there's your problem. That's your biggest problem right there is you're not making offers. Um, and then finally, the third piece of advice I'd have is stop only going to the banks for financing. Way too many people treat the banks as this holier than now institution and that's the only place you're allowed to borrow money. If you want to succeed as an investor at some point in time, you're gonna to have to get comfortable with using other people's money and that means more than just the bank's money. Beautiful, love it. Okay, so I think uh, maybe this is a question some of our listeners have. So we all, I think everyone kind of understands you're in London, Ontario or Southwestern Ontario. So do you think this, and in what ways would you say that this could apply in the GTA? And I think you've mentioned a few cities where you could see it happening, but what differences would there be uh, just from an outside perspective in our marketplace? Sure. So certainly, you know, the business model that I've been talking about today, um, where we're going to burr properties that meet the 1% rule, that's going to be very difficult if you're buying a million dollar condo. It's going to be very difficult if you're getting into new construction, if you're going into big McMansion suburbs. So things like that aren't going to be applicable. However, you know, if we look in some of the uh, like tertiary regions of the GTA, I know people that are uh, effectively doing this in markets like Hamilton, St. Catharines, uh, the Durham, Oshawa area, Pickering, um, Barrie, things like that. In addition, if we go just even a little bit further, there's a lot of investors implementing this strategy in Kitchener-Waterloo, Brantford, Ontario, London, Ontario. And certainly once you go further down the 401 corridor, you can find all sorts of deals in like Windsor, Chatham, Sarnia, so on and so forth. So what it really comes down to is understanding as an investor what we're trying to accomplish. For me, what I'm focused on doing is building up cash flow while also building up my network. And the burn investment strategy with cash flowing 1% rural properties is a perfect solution to what I'm trying to accomplish as an investor. Now, some people don't want to accomplish that as an investor, and that's fine. But what's really important is that you know and understand your business model. And in general, you know, some, what really scares me about some Toronto investors, and I'm using air quotes here, guys, is when I hear that their only business model and their only exit strategy is what I like to call the greater fool theory. And that's where they're just hoping that someone at some point in time will offer them a bunch more money than what it costs them to buy this property. And that to me, that's only one exit strategy. We have very little control over that asset and that exit. And you're just asking for trouble if things ever change in the market whatsoever. Yeah. And I think this is a big reason why I wanted you in this podcast, because the closer you get to downtown and the city, the more people are relying on equity, which is there's nothing wrong with that strategy, but I wanted to at least have an alternate perspective because I've been able to apply what you're saying. And I've seen so many people be successful in addressing cash flow as a priority and equity as a secondary uh, outcome that will naturally come in growing marketplaces. So 
I really appreciate you taking time. Um, I actually have a, another quick question for you, just out of curiosity. Now that the coronavirus is kind of going on, and I know you're looking to put out some excellent content on that as well, but I'm just kind of curious, like, what are some of the things that, because um, you now you've prepared, actually, I, I figured there'd be a bunch of great insight in there. Um, what are some of the things that you expect will change maybe in your portfolio or your investment strategy, or maybe what are some of the opportunities that you kind of see coming down the pipes? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing to be aware of, we're shooting this on like March 12th. So this is a very much a dynamic situation and I don't want to give any, any misunderstandings. I don't have a crystal ball and anyone that claims they do, they're either lying or they're literally ignorant. And so it's important we identify that. To me, there's a spectrum of different outcomes that have a higher plausibility or likelihood than others. What I'm currently looking at, and again, some people will consider this fear-mongering, some people will consider this an underreaction is, to me, I think that this is like a 9-11 type event. So the incident itself is of importance, but what I think will actually be even more important is the aftermath and after effects. So I personally believe that we are going to see a change in people's consumption habits and some of their behavior patterns. So what I mean specifically by that, I think people that are in a high risk category, so people over the age of 65, people that are obese, people that have respiratory diseases or people that are heavy smokers, they may actually change some of their behaviors and patterns. They may start staying at home more. They may go out less often. They may order stuff in more and things of that nature. And in fact, we already live in a digital age where you know we don't really need to go out that often realistically. And in fact, a lot of us could probably do everything from home if we were compelled to do so. So I think it's really important to first understand that I think that's where the long-term consequences are most likely going to end. Now, in the short term, I think we're going to see a lot of volatility and a lot of a lot of broken telephone game as well, where there's going to be a lot of misinformation and misunderstandings towards facts and things of that nature. I personally don't think that, you know, people that are outside of those risk categories need to be panicking. But at the same time, it'd be naive of us to completely ignore the situation. I think it is bigger than a lot of the previous issues that we've maybe been exposed to in the past. And again, like I know there's lots of memes going around about like oh like i lived through y2k sars bird flu all that da, da, da. i'm not worried about uh you know coronavirus or whatever and I, I appreciate that sentiment but i do think that it's important we always focus on the data i find a lot of people are ignoring the data and a lot of the research and just kind of going based upon drama and previous experiences and so I think it's important to really dial in your understanding overall. So in general, I think that a lot of volatility in the stock market for the near future. In fact, I could see, you know, if things continue on the current trend, that we could be entering either like a very short recession or a long recession, depending upon exactly how our consumption behaviors adapt to this whole new reality. Um, again, likely we're going to see tighter borders and restrictions around things of that nature. We're likely going to see, you know, some protectionism as well, which like scares me because I'm a libertarian and love free trade. And that's what's really allowed us to succeed, us, the greater human species in general to succeed and get to the level of prosperity we're currently at. So that is of concern for me. But at the same time, like overall, I'm just going to keep buying real estate. I don't see <laughs> why real estate would be overall impacted dramatically unless things really move into a black swan event. And so I know I've got some commenters on YouTube that they're like, why are you keeping this a secret? Why aren't you telling people all the market's going to crash? And this is, this is what it boils down to, in my opinion. If this is the end of the world, I'd rather have a lot at the end of the world and lose it all 
then have nothing at the end of the world and have nothing to lose. So I don't suspect that that's the reality that we're living in. Um, but even if it is, I'm still going to be an optimist overall because I think that's the world I want to live in. And we can often, to a small degree, influence the reality we exist in. Um, but at the same time, I'm probably not going to go heavy into paper assets because I don't have a lot of control over what the general broad market does. So I'm not diving into stocks and things of that nature. But if I was to take a guess, I, I think like companies like Amazon and Netflix, you know, outside of the obvious like Johnson & Johnson, Purell and things of that nature are an interesting play because I think we will see those behavior patterns at least change for the short term, if not the long term. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Matt, for coming on our uh, podcast today. How can people reach you or how can they find some of your awesome content that I know I love watching and uh, where are they best able to find you? Yeah, thanks. Um, so anywhere social media is, I'll be there. But you can find me just on my handle at Matt McKeever. Love for you guys to check out the YouTube channel. We're producing a video a day in 2020. I've got a big media team behind me. And we're really committed to delivering the high quality Canadian content that I wish existed back in 2010 when I started my journey as a real estate investor. But hey, at least it exists now in 2020. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. It's it's really cool to see. There's a lot of like uh, you mentioned, bigger pockets, and uh, there's there's a bunch of really good platforms out there where we can learn. But a lot of them are in the states, and so to have somebody that's doing this locally, I think, is very powerful. And that's why, again, I'm so excited to have had you on the podcast. So uh, we're gonna leave it there. Thank you all for listening, and uh, make sure you check out some of what Matt has on his platform. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Keep it real. Thanks, Bradley.